You're going to love this. Just love it. That's what the man says. Listen to him. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM, people-powered radio in Los Angeles, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM, KYAQ on the Central Coast, and 106.7 KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove, out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM, WLRI in Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM, KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM, Green Renaissance Radio. And up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950, KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yes, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and blanketing planet Earth five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says you. From bradblog.com. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Getting in early, are you? Uh, welcome to the show. Glad you could join us. It will be another a thrilling, action-packed adventure. We have some election and primary and voting news coming up, some of it breaking late today, including a somewhat surprising announcement from the Bernie Sanders campaign and some good news for voters out in the state of Ohio. Oh, hello, Ohio. We'll have all of that in a moment. Plus, I swear to God, not since 2008 have I seen Democrats so so beside themselves over democracy breaking out in their own party. Uh, you'd think that the extended battle between uh, Clinton and Sanders was a terrible thing for them. Oh, no, it's going on and on. It's democracy. But as my guest coming up, we'll discuss in just a few minutes. There is at least one, actually two, maybe even more really, really, really good reasons that Democrats ought to be thanking Bernie Sanders for staying in the race through California's primary on June 7th. In fact, they should be uh, not just thanking him. They should be begging him to stay in the race through California's primary on June 7th, rather than taking cheap shots at him all over the media for doing so. Seriously. <sighs> anyway, we will explain that in a few minutes uh, uh, with my guest. Also, you know, we have been playing uh, this uh, th this hoax video from uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, of late on this show and on the Green News Report. Desi, do you have that, uh, Donald Trump? So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and the, that, a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? It's a hoax. A lot of it. A lot of it. A lot of it's a hoax. A lot of it. <laughs> Not all of it, but a lot of it. A lot of it's a hoax, says Donald Trump when it comes to global warming. Well, now we know why he says 
a lot of it. Not all of it, but a lot of it. There is some of it uh, that apparently he doesn't believe is a hoax. And we have found out that reason. Uh, we have found out the, the part of, uh, of, of global warming that Donald Trump does not see as a hoax. And that will be coming up a little bit later with Desi Doyen in the Green News Report. Oh, goody. Yes, and a lot of other stuff in our Green News Report today. A lot of important stuff, a lot of news to look forward to in that. Uh, in the meantime, today, as we go to air, folks in Washington state, Republicans in Washington state in any event, are holding a primary. Yes, you might not have heard much about it for a couple of reasons. One, uh, you know, everybody has dropped out other than uh, other than uh, uh, what's his name? Donald Trump. That's right. Other than Donald Trump. Uh, but also because they do in uh, in Washington, Washington state. Now they do a lot of their voting as uh, by mail, vote by mail. Much of the state, almost all of the state, I think right now. Um, so you won't hear much about that. And the results don't obviously don't matter all of that much. But they could actually be very interesting on Sunday. Uh, the Washington State, uh, actually it was over the weekend, I don't know if it was Saturday or Sunday or both, but uh, the Washington State GOP held its convention and uh, they, where they selected their delegates. Uh, they have um, 41 delegate slots uh, to choose and uh, they awarded 40 of the state's 41 elected delegate slots to go to the Republican National Convention to, wait for it, Ted Cruz. That's right. 40 of 41 went to Ted Cruz, who has dropped his presidential bid uh, several weeks ago after losing the Indiana primary to Donald Trump. Um, but that move, selecting pretty much all of the Washington state Republican delegates, delegates for Ted Cruz, uh, that won't probably won't change the math that much in the Republican race because the delegates elected over the weekend are still bound to the vote of the uh, statewide results of the May 24 primary, at least on the first ballot. So uh, they've selected all of these Ted Cruz uh, people to go to the National Convention. Those Ted Cruz people are going to have to vote the way the statewide results of the Republican primary, which is being held today, actually comes out. So if Donald Trump wins that, as expected, all of those Cruz people will have to vote for Donald Trump, at least on the first ballot. Um, and even Trump's state campaign chair, State Senator Don Benton, uh, was unable to get a national delegate slot, according to the uh, to the Hills report over the weekend. A former state GOP chair, Chris Vance, who is also a candidate for U.S. Senate, uh, said he doesn't plan to support the party's presumptive nominee, Donald Trump. And he's quoted, I love this quote, Do you think I enjoy this, not supporting the nominee? It's unpleasant, <laughs> Vance said. So that's what's going on in Washington. If there are any surprises, we will, uh, after the votes are, are tallied, we'll actually have those uh, surprising results on our next thrilling broadcast. Uh, in the meantime, uh, here's a bit of a surprise coming from Bernie Sanders today. Uh, Democratic presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders campaign is asking Kentucky officials to review the votes from last week's primary. What? Yes. OK. As you may recall, on May 17 in Kentucky, there was a very, very close race. It was just uh, Democrats voting that day in Kentucky. Um, 
That was the day that uh, Bernie Sanders won big in the Oregon primary. But in the Kentucky primary, he was said to have been the unofficial loser by uh, just under 2,000 votes. So uh, where we are right now is uh, Hillary Clinton received 212,550 votes to Sanders' uh, 210,000 626 votes, a 1,924 vote difference, giving Clinton uh, the, the bare, uh, the barest uh, victory there in Kentucky from that May 17th election. Her percentage uh, in the race, 46.76. Bernie Sanders' percentage, 46.33. That is, uh, what does that come out to? A difference of 0.43%, so less than one-half of 1% uh, out of almost a million, uh, half a million votes cast across the bluegrass state. Uh, at the time that uh, that election happened, in, in the days following that election, uh, I explained how, in fact, uh, Bernie Sanders was unlikely to request a recount, and in fact, he has not requested a recount. He has requested a re-canvas. I'll explain the difference in a second. But um, one reason uh, that he was unlikely to uh, ask for a recount is because the delegates split. Right now, they're each getting 27 delegates apiece. So it is essentially a tie. Sanders has called it a virtual tie, which uh, which he's just about right. Uh, there is one odd delegate that is left to be uh, apportioned. But because they do it proportionally in, uh, well, in all of the Democratic states, both Clinton and Sanders end up with 27 delegates apiece, although Clinton uh, comes out uh, with a bit of the bragging rights because of those uh, just less than 2,000 votes uh, that put her over the top. But I explained after the election, after Election Day, that in fact, uh, because Kentucky hates some of their voters so much that they still make them use 100% unverifiable touchscreen uh, voting systems in a few counties in that state, that because there were those 100% unverifiable touchscreen votes, that even if Bernie Sanders had requested a full hand recount of all of the paper ballots, we would still never know who actually won the state of Kentucky because more votes were cast on those unverifiable touchscreens than the margin of difference between Clinton and Sanders. And that is, of course, just one of the problems with using these 100 percent unverifiable touchscreens, as Kentucky still does in uh, a number of counties in their state. They've been moving, thankfully, away from those touchscreen systems towards paper ballot systems. Not that those paper ballot systems are counted, uh, not that those paper ballots are counted either. Those are just run through optical scan computers, not actually counted by human beings. So they are tallied either correctly or incorrectly. Who knows? We don't and we still won't, even with Sanders uh, asking for this re-canvas of the Kentucky primary. Now, Huffington Post has inaccurately reported this with the headline, Bernie Sanders requests Kentucky primary recount. Well, no, he has not. He has requested a re-canvas, not a recount. Now, he gets a re-canvas for free, a recount apparently he would have to pay for. But the two are very different. Uh, a a re-canvas, which is what Sanders has asked for, just rechecks the voting machines, rechecks those computers. 
that I mentioned. Those tallies that have already been reported by the optical scan uh, paper ballot computers or those 100% touchscreen uh, computers, they just basically go back and check those, uh, you know, I don't even know if they, they might print out the, uh, have the computer printed out again, or they look at them again, they check their math again. They might check the, uh, the, the total number of votes against the number of uh, reported voters who actually signed in to vote as part of that canvas, but they don't actually go back and check the results. They don't actually, to my knowledge, go back and check the computers, uh, check the ballots to make sure that the computers tallied them correctly at least where they can with the paper ballots. So um, that's just a, that's a re-canvas, and that's what Sanders is doing, not a recount, which would be an actual, you know, hand count, hopefully a hand count, or, or at least some kind of new count, maybe running the ballots through the computers again. Um, that would be a recount. Uh, and they could only do that, of course, at least where ballots actually exist in Kentucky, not in those touchscreen counties. Um, so that's where we are. I don't suspect, with all of that said, I don't suspect any of that is going to make a difference. I don't suspect that the votes are going to actually, the vote totals will actually change in any way, shape, or form. I could be wrong. They could change in some fashion, but they generally don't when you're doing a re-canvas because all you're doing is checking the, uh, uh, you know, the, the computer results that have already been reported. Now, the Sanders campaign, uh, uh, for their part, uh, this was uh, Sanders aide Larry Cohn said on CNN, he said, I think the point uh, for this re-canvas is just transparency. It's not just about Kentucky. It's about trying to create a context now and at the Democratic convention that these primaries and caucuses need transparency. They need to be authentic. They need to build confidence among voters, particularly younger voters, that this is not rigged. That was Larry Cohn on CNN uh, from the Sanders campaign explaining why they're doing this re-canvas. Well, if they really care about transparency, and they really want to demonstrate uh, to uh, young voters or anyone else that the process is not rigged, as they describe it. They might actually count the paper ballots, at least where they exist in Kentucky. But that is not what they are doing. If they wanted to build confidence among voters, doing a recanvas of the computers and the computer already co reported computer results and just reporting them again is not actually going to build confidence amongst uh, voters, at least not to my knowledge. That is my take on it. This re-canvas uh, will take place on Thursday, 9 a.m. local time, Thursday, May 26, when all the county boards of elections uh, are being ordered to reconvene by uh, Allison Lundergan Grimes, the Kentucky Secretary of State, who happens to be a big uh, Hillary Clinton supporter, for whatever that's worth. Um but that's what's going to happen on uh, on Thursday. And probably nothing will change. Nonetheless, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, told AP uh, that uh, the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia could be, quote, messy. But he added democracy is not always nice and quiet and gentle. That's right. He's right. Sanders said uh, in an interview with the AP on Monday that his uh, supporters hope to see a platform at the July convention that reflects the needs of working families, the poor and young people. And in fact, he has been successful in getting a whole bunch of really progressive folks onto that uh, platform committee in Philadelphia. So that should be good news for progressives. 
Sanders went on to say that uh, he will, quote, condemn any and all forms of violence, but that his presidential campaign is bringing new people into the process who have never gone to a political convention before. He said he hopes that, quote, their voices will be heard. Asked if the convention could be messy, Sanders said, so what? Democracy is messy. Boom. And he is absolutely right. Democracy is messy. It's uh, where is it messier than uh, many other places? Oh, the state of Ohio. And we've got some good news uh, for voters in the state of Ohio. The U.S. District Court of Southern Ohio ruled on Tuesday that cuts, deep cuts to Ohio's early voting uh, days that were signed into law by Republican Governor John Kasich and pushed for by Republican Secretary of State of Ohio, uh, uh, John Husted, are, unconst- quote, unconstitutional and accordingly unenforceable in the Buckeye State. Judge Michael Watson sided with the Ohio Organizing Collaborative, a, co- a coalition of labor unions, faith organizations, and other community organizing groups that sued the state after they had sharply curtailed the number of early voting days in Ohio. Uh, among the early voting days that they got rid of was the so-called Golden Week. And that was put in place after after the disaster of the Ohio election back in 2004. Yes, all of this that is going on in Ohio today in 2016 is directly related to what happened in Ohio in 2004. When just six votes recorded for John Kerry instead of George W. Bush in each precinct would have meant that John Kerry became the president in 2004 instead of uh, instead of the re selection of George W. Bush. So Golden Week. Well, and then also remember, in 2004, people were waiting in line up to, what, nine, ten hours? And so obviously some people left. Well, that's right. A lot of people left. A lot of people weren't able to cast their votes at all. The last vote was uh, cast in uh, in 2004 in Ohio at about uh, two or three o'clock in the morning at Kenyon College, as I recall. Uh, So they had uh, they they ended up electing a Democratic uh, secretary of state. Uh, Jennifer Brunner, and she came in, did a lot of election reforms, added early voting, added a lot of like 35 days of early voting, including what they called Golden Week, which was a week when you could both register to vote at the beginning of the early voting period and cast an actual vote. So you could uh, it was essentially same day voting, uh, same day registration and voting during the early voting period. This is something that the Ohio Republicans because it worked so well, and it did in 2008, uh, that they had to get rid of uh, in in 2012. And this has gone back and forth now in the courts. It's been challenged. Well, now, today, at least as of today, um, a, uh, a, a judge has, a federal judge has, has said that they must restore those early voting times, those early voting hours, those early voting days. This is very good news. The judge wrote that uh, cutting those days results in less opportunity for African-Americans to participate in the political process than other voters. That is a violation of Section 2 of the Federal Voting Rights Act. He also finds that it violates uh, the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So good news for voters. Uh, No doubt this will be challenged. Uh, And as uh, Rick Hassan notes over at Election Law Blog, uh, when you combine this case 
The North Carolina voting case, where they're challenging a whole bunch of restrictions on voting, uh, that's currently on appeal to the Fourth Circuit. And the Texas photo ID appeal, that is currently uh, being heard by the complete Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals starting today, along with two additional challenges to Wisconsin's photo ID, which was upheld by the Seventh Circuit Court after a five to five split there. Uh, he notes that all of this is uh, sorely uh, underscores the need for clarification of the scope of Section two of the Voting Rights Act. Yet, he adds, the Scalia less and Garland less uh, Supreme Court may not be in a position to take any of these cases right now in that they may end up splitting four to four on their resolution and uh, the mess will simply continue thereafter. Uh, Hassan adds, it just shows you a cost of the vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court right now. It does. Yes, uh, democracy is indeed messy. So, speaking of messy democracy, let's take a break and we will come back uh, with my guest, David Atkins of the Washington Monthly, uh, to discuss why uh, it's a really, really good idea that Bernie Sanders is still in the race uh, at least uh, through California when we go to vote out here on June 7th. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Democrats, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. You know, for all the bitching and moaning and complaining uh, that we're hearing now from so many uh, Democrats, uh, oh, Bernie needs to get out of the race. It's it's hurting Hillary Clinton. It's hurting her chances against uh, against Donald Trump in November. For all of that. Uh, you would think they might take a minute or two to look at the upsides of this continuing race and the race continuing through June 7th and through uh, uh, out here in California and the other states that are going to be participating in the primary on uh, on on June 7th. One reason, just one alone, uh, is cited by David Atkins in Washington Monthly, and it's uh, it's something we've talked about on this program. Uh, this is from the Mercury News uh, that David Atkins cites. 
He writes, uh, Californians are registering to vote in breathtaking numbers not seen since the Reagan Revolution. As the no-holds-barred presidential primary season and tech-based outreach efforts have rousted more than one million people from their political slumber. More than twice as many Californians registered this year than in the same four-month period in 2012, according to Political Data Inc., an L.A. county firm that tracks state voter trends. The new voters are trending young and Democratic, two groups who are more inspired by Bernie Sanders than Donald Trump. Paul Mitchell, the firm's president, notes there is no precedent for this in California since 1980 in terms of the overall surge in voter registration. Of course, 1980 was when the state's former governor, Ronald Reagan, was running for president, so that's understandable. But since then, we haven't seen this kind of huge bump in voter registration numbers, particularly on the Democratic side, uh, in decades. But that is not the only reason that the ongoing primary may be very good for Democrats, specifically out here in California. Here to talk about that is David Atkins. David O. Atkins is a writer, campaign professional and researcher who blogs for Washington Monthly's Political Animal and has written for our friend uh, Digby's Hullabaloo blog, as well as Salon and Alternate and many more. David Atkins, sir, welcome to the broadcast. Glad to be here. Uh, great to have you. All right. So uh, before I get to, uh, I think, what is really the the key element of why it's important and why, uh, frankly, Democrats, Hillary Clinton, the party establishment and everyone else ought to be happy uh, that this uh, primary is going to continue through California. Before we get to that, let's talk about these just these registration numbers. What do you attribute uh, this huge bump in uh, numbers of new voters in California to? Uh, two things. I think that the article says it right. I mean, part of it is that Donald Trump is really uh, energizing the uh, Hispanic and Latino community out here to uh, to register to vote more because they feel not only anger at Trump's presence, but also a lot of fear, fear about what Trump would actually do. There are, there are serious consequences, and uh, Latino media is all in against Trump, as well they should be, and so that's driving a lot of it. But, of course, a lot of it, too, is young people registering because they're inspired by Bernie Sanders' campaign. I'm sure that there are people who are also inspired by by Clinton as well, of course, but the primary drivers are Latino registration in order to vote against Donald Trump and young person registration usually for Sanders. So that's a, you know, those things are big drivers. And as we've discussed on this program, there's also been a huge number of voters switching their affiliation uh, from the American Independent Party to the Democratic Party. Now, the American Independent Party, for people in, who aren't in California, uh, that's the party that a lot of people accidentally uh, sign into thinking that they're being uh, independent, that they're actually not joining a party. And in fact, they're joining the American Independent Party. And uh, uh, Los Angeles Times came out with a report recently that uh, there were just hundreds of thousands of people who didn't even know they were registered as American independents. Uh, and they have to switch out of that uh, to become either Democrats or what we call decline to state voters in uh, in California here or no party preference voters so that they can then uh, uh, vote in the Democratic primary. I would think Democrats ought to be happy about that as well, no? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, it's a little bit odd because other different states do it differently. In mm-hmm. California, you do register with a political party, and one of the big challenges is that on that voter registration form, the American Independent Party, because the voter registration form usually, they change it up every so often, but usually is done when you look at the political parties in alphabetical order, it's the first one that shows up. And so if you say, oh, I want to be an independent voter, then, oh, there's the American Independent Party, because no one knows that this is a super right-wing small party started by George Wallace. And if you want not to be registered with a party at all, then that's the last checkbox uh, that we now call no party preference. Uh, Decline the state's gone out of fashion. We call it, say, no party preference now. But basically, and most people don't see that box way over there, and so they register with American Independent Party thinking that they are independent and they're not and that means that they do not you know they will not be able to vote in the democratic primary mm-hmm. unless they re-register as democrats or at the very least as no party preference so um uh, so that is driving a lot of the registration change as well as folks who are in who call themselves independent voters which is a a uh, big thing of course not only with you know politically disaffected individuals but also with young people mm-hmm have to realize that and say, oh, I need to change my registration. And a change in registration is also considered a new registration. So that's the factor as well. And uh, yeah, and and uh, so a lot of uh, a lot of voters actually did realize this was the case and actually are making that effort to join the Democratic Party. Again, you would think Democrats would be happy about this. But uh, you yeah. write at Washington Monthly, uh, it's not even the registration numbers that I, I think are, are really the, the key factor here in the argument you're making. You write uh, that uh, contrary to conventional wisdom, the ongoing primaries helping Democrats in California rather than damaging the party, as many have been uh, contending of late. Uh, how could that possibly be? How are they helping above and beyond registration numbers, which seems key? How are they specifically uh, the ongoing, uh, you know, the, this continuing race with Bernie Sanders? How is that going to be good for Democrats up and down the ballot uh, on June 7th? Right. Well, so in California has what's known as a top two primary. It was enacted by the voters in the state constitution by initiative process. Uh, several years ago, 2010, I believe. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it basically removes all partisanship from the primary ballot. The way it works is, no matter who the candidates are, the top two candidates in June advance November, even if it's two Republicans, even if it's two Democrats. And in fact, um, you're not required to state uh, political party affiliation on the ballot unless you choose to. So you can have a no party preference affiliation or you can choose to say uh, affiliates with the Democrats or affiliates with the Republicans. But basically it was a measure enacted by good government reformers, which sometimes they come up with good ideas, but sometimes they come up with terrible ones, (laughs) to basically take the process out of the hands of the parties and put it in the hands of the people so that they could just vote for the best person. Well, what functionally happens because of that is that, you know, people tend to be conservative or liberal when they run for office either way, Mm -hmm. no matter what. And sometimes you get situations where, let's say you have a district that is 10% more Democratic than Republican, and Mm -hmm. this actually happened four years ago in uh, California's 31st district. Let's say you have a district that's, say, 10% more Democratic, Mm -hmm. and let's say five Democrats run and two Republicans run. And it's a low turnout June primary. All five Democrats split all their votes. 
the two Republicans don't, you know, split their votes or whatever, mm-hmm. but more, but you get a more conservative electorate and the Democrats split their votes among the five candidates. You get two Republicans advancing into November, even though the district is 10% more Democratic. And all the Democrats that, are wiped out. They don't make it to November because of that. They don't make it to November. And so, in fact, in... <laughs> You actually had, you've had the situation come up multiple times now where this has happened. And this happens fairly frequently, and it's not just the congressional stuff, it's also Assembly and State Senate districts where this is a major concern. So, uh, so the party, the, the, the California Democratic Party in particular, although this also happens on the flip side with Republicans, though less often, where, you know, in a red district, multiple Republicans run, a couple mm-hmm. of Democrats run, and the Republicans may not advance someone, it's usually detrimental to our side. It's not a conspiracy, it's just the way it works. Right. But, so what happens is, you have this major problem where instead of it being a situation where the parties are less influential, the parties tend to be more influential because now there's an incentive to hound and drum people out of the race. Uh, out, of the but, primary, out of the primary race, to, to say don't even that's run. Right. Yeah, I gotcha. And, but that's not the yeah, case. Because, it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I mean, it's just, it just it, the, the good government reporters were trying to take elections out of the hands of the party bosses, and mm-hmm. inadvertently, they've actually put more power into the hands of the party bosses, because now the party bosses have, have a direct incentive to reduce the number of candidates running in the primary for this reason. And, and you have that situation, uh, you write, in your own district, right, where Lois Capps, a uh, Democratic congresswoman, is, is retiring, and there's a, what, is there a bunch of Democrats who are trying to get that seat at this point? That's right. There is the, my very own district in Santa Barbara, where Lois Caps is retiring, is a major uh, focal point for this issue now. Uh, this is the 26th district, and you have a number of Democrats. Uh, you know, I, I won't go into all of the mm-hmm. Schneider and uh, Saud Carbajal and Bill Ostrander and a number of others, and only two major Republicans. All right, and so right now, it's pretty clear who's going to win the Democratic primary. But because of low June turnout, it's not entirely clear that that person, mm. which will probably be Salute Carball, will actually advance into November. You may very well have a situation where, in Lois Caps's district, the only choice on the November ballot will be two Republicans. And with all the and, co- with all the complaints about uh, that we're hearing now from from Democrats, oh, Bernie ought to get out of the race, et cetera. Uh, so, is it your contention, David Atkins, that California Democrats, if you ask the California Democratic Party, they would at this point say, "No, Bernie, please don't drop out. Please stay in at least through June seventh." Yeah, I mean, like most party leadership. Uh, most of the leadership in the California Democratic Party is uh, for Clinton, nominally, although with one exception. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think you'd hear them say it openly, but you do hear the opposite on the other side, right? You have the Re- California Republican Party that was, uh, that was desperate to keep the party primary going, mm-hmm. not just because they didn't want to see Trump as the nominee, but because having a healthy Cruz versus Trump turnout where Republicans were really energized to come out to vote was going to help them mm-hmm. uh, with this situation and help them potentially get more Republicans onto the November ballot. And now they don't have it, and they are despondent about that. <laughs> and privately and internally, though you won't necessarily hear it publicly, uh, officials in the California Democratic Party feel the same way. 
And, and so Democrats and, uh, really dodged a bullet, frankly, by the fact that uh, the Trump and Cruz and Kasich race came to an end uh, early before it got out here to California. We would ha- have had huge Republican numbers. Uh, and we might have seen a lot of those contests that you're talking about, David, uh, where it was uh, two uh, Republicans uh, who, who advanced absolutely. to the uh, November race. Uh, absolutely. And the other the other big point I want to make, too, is that a lot of the major registration that is happening and a lot of the huge Bernie support is, of course, on college campuses. And that's mm. where in a lot of these districts, including in the 26th, where you have UC Santa Barbara, Mm-hmm. Um, that's a huge hotbed of Bernie support. So if Bernie were to drop out, that would be a huge number of Democrats who basically would not show up to the polls in June. And that really could make the difference as to whether there is a Democrat in this congressional seat come June or November. Come November. And it has nothing to do with Bernie support or Clinton support or anything like that or the presidential nomination. It literally has to do with how many Democrats show up in June in terms of who's motivated, no matter who they're voting for. Um, So a good, healthy primary is going to continue to bring out more voters, which in California can make a difference as to who advances in November. Now, that's a good thing, obviously, for partisans, whether you're a Democratic partisan or a Republican partisan. But we spoke a few weeks on this program, a few weeks ago on this program with John Opdyke of OpenPrimaries.com. And this was following, you know, some of the uh, complaints that voters were having around the country with these closed primaries. Uh, John Opdyke argued that open primaries are the way to go. He cited California's top two system, uh, of primaries as a model for uh, the nation. Uh, but but doesn't what you're describing, David, underscore the problem with that? Or is it only a problem for partisans? In other words, uh, for those who are you know looking to get other voices into politics, third parties and such, uh, the, the, the top two, the argument is that it's a, a fine way to break up the two-party duopoly. Where are, where are you on that uh, angle of the question? Well, this is one of the things that's frustrated me about Sanders, though I'm an avid and strong Sanders supporter. The, the demonization of the Democratic Party as a whole and the party system as a whole is, is a problem. Uh, the United States, because we have a winner-take-all system, we're not a parliamentary system. I, I would move to a parliamentary system in a heartbeat, mm. away from the American system of, of electing folks, uh, the way France does it or Israel or Scandinavian countries. Like, it, it actually tends to more progressive outcomes. But given that we have the system we have in America, which is winner-take-all, it, it advantages two parties. And if you're going to, because you can't afford to let the other guy win because he takes everything at 50% plus one of the vote. Mm-hmm. So, so if the left splits its coalition between the Democrats and the Greens, or if the right splits its coalition between the Republicans and the Libertarians, it doesn't really help them. It just advances the other side. So, the, so in theory, Updike has a point, maybe, but it not in practice. What we've actually seen as a result of the open primary system is not that uh, candidates become less ideological. What the good government reformers were hoping to do is take the process out of the hands of the parties, decorrupt it in theory, mm-hmm. and and get you know decent people who did who didn't have a specific ideology into office that has not happened you haven't seen a single independent win you haven't seen anyone break party lines what you've seen instead is that the parties now have an incentive to bounce people out of the primary process uh faster than they would have and you've seen a situation now where you have unintended consequences in which 
district that, you know, should be going one way according to what the voters, you know, want by party mm-hmm. preference, end up going the other because of this weird split <laughs> vote thing. But you have not actually seen what the reformers were hoping for in this way. And the reason for that is that, like them or not, political parties provide a good heuristic for voters. You know, most voters don't actually know who the candidates are, what their specific platforms are, but being a member of the Democratic Party or being a member of the Republican Party is a really helpful heuristic for voters to know, oh, this person stands for like 90% of what I believe in, I'm going to vote for them. Gotcha. Uh, and And that's really helpful. It's really helpful, actually. And if we had a parliamentary system, we could have more parties, but we don't so well it's, it's not a good idea well we we do we do have more parties we have more parties out here in california we've been talking uh, on this program about the divide of course uh, among democrats uh, of late given the you know the the, the battle between uh, clinton and sanders but recently uh, green party presidential candidate jill stein was on the show she argued that bernie sanders should join her on the green party ticket uh, at the same time the prospects uh, harold myerson was on the show to make the case uh, that the bernie and harold myerson is, uh, you know, himself a democratic socialist. He says there was a time uh, decades ago when him and uh, when he and Bernie Sanders were the only out of the closet democratic socialists in Washington, D.C. He makes the case that the Bernie or bust folks, uh, those folks who, who uh, you know, say that if Bernie does not win, they are either going to not vote or they're going to vote for third party or they could even vote for Donald Trump. Myerson says uh, the folks may want to think twice about that strategy. Where do you, David Atkins, sit on this uh, Bernie or bust uh, question as yourself a supporter of, uh, of Bernie Sanders? Uh, I'm adamantly opposed to it, and not because I don't sympathize with where these folks are coming from. I agree that the entire system needs to be changed top to bottom and that where the Democratic Party has been for the last 30 years, at least until recently, has helped compound the problem in terms of especially the economic problem. On social issues, we're, we're fine, but on, econ- on core economic issues that have led to the high tuition rates, the skyrocketing housing prices and all of that, yeah, it's, it's a problem, and so I sympathize. But as a matter of tactics, it's really not smart because you, because you saw what happened in 2000 with Nader. You can claim that Al Gore should have been more to the left and the Nader voters would have come for him or whatever. But the fact remains that the fact that so many people voted for Nader in Florida over Gore gave us George W. Bush. And say what you want about Al Gore, he would not have invaded Iraq. <laughs> you would have not... You know, you would have not seen what happened under the Bush administration. Well, and, so as and, you know, there's still a huge difference, even between a Clinton Democrat and a Republican. Right? There's still an enormous gulf. There, do I wish that Clinton were better? Sure, of course I do. But the difference in her and Donald Trump is still gulfs apart, and we really can't afford to be giving away the presidency to Donald Trump because we're not happy with Hillary Clinton. My theory of change. And my reason that I got involved in the Democratic Party after uh, Howard Dean was to make the Democratic Party better and more progressive. And given the rules that we have in America about elections, I think that's really the only path forward we can take. We try to do that in the primary system, and then we vote for the best that we can get in the general. And the best we can get in the general at this point is going to be Hillary Clinton. You You cannot let Donald Trump into the presidency. And then we come back and we fight for a better Congress and a more progressive Congress. And then, you know, in 2020 or 2024, 
we'll see what we can do. I will. Uh, I will only add a quibble uh, on your Nader Gore point to say that it wasn't uh, Ralph Nader who cost uh, the election to the Democrats. It was the Supreme Court because when they actually bothered to count all of those ballots in 2000, sure enough, uh, Al Gore actually had more than George W. Bush. But that's a small quibble, yeah, that's true. Uh, David. Uh, will the divide in the party? We've got just a minute or two here left. Uh, will the divide in the party in the Democratic Party right now? Uh, Will that, in fact, end up hurting them against Donald Trump uh, if Hillary Clinton is the nominee? Or will, uh, as we saw in 2008, when I remember uh, the divide being much, much worse, uh, they came together in 2008. Uh, will that happen again in 2016? Or or is this really going to damage uh, the Democratic Party as you see it? I don't think so. I, I think in 2000, and it, a lot of it will depend on how Hillary Clinton campaigns from here. Uh, but I don't think so. In 2008, there was a lot of concern about the Clinton people who might not vote for Obama, and it turned out to be overwrought. That was in more ways an identity politics thing. You know, African Americans, women, a lot of women who were upset, obviously. Uh, this is a little more about policy, obviously, with Sanders and Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if Clinton campaigns, as a true progressive going forward against Trump and, and really promises to do something about the tuition crisis and the inequality crisis and to actually do something about Wall Street and the shadow banking industry. And if she doesn't pivot too far to what's called the center but is actually sort of you know corporate America, then I think that you'll see some Bernie folks come around. If she pivots to a bunch of like uh, pablum corporate approaches, then you're going to see a lot of folks stay home. Um, but I wouldn't, but you're not going to know that until we get more into August or September. Right now, you've got a bunch of Bernie folks who are still very upset and, you know, in, and we're still in the middle of the primary process and those folks are going to stay upset for a little while. But if Clinton campaigns is a real progressive, you should see those folks come around, most of them. Um, but we'll see. It'll depend a lot on what she does. And and do you believe, uh, uh, David, that this uh, battle is going to continue all the way through the Democratic Convention in July? And I guess that's another way of saying, well, uh, how's Bernie going to do in California? Uh, I know uh, predictions are uh, uh, not wise, but uh, what's your sense of, of uh, what's going to happen out here? I think Clinton will win because we've seen that the demographics are locked in. Uh, Clinton tends to win minority voters. Um, and we don't need to go into like there, we'd do a whole other segment on why. But mm-hmm. uh, Clinton tends to win minority voters, and California has a heavy minority population. Um, and she tends to win uh, older voters, um, and we have a, a number of those as well. Mm-hmm. So, but what's interesting? So Clinton will probably win handily. There was just a poll out showing her up by almost twenty points. But what's interesting is that Sanders wins among voters who are under 40. Mm-hmm. Even uh, black voters under 35, Sanders wins pretty heavily. But Clinton is winning hands hands down and far, far and away with older voters. And uh, that's, I think, going to be determinative. But that's also why it'll be very interesting to see where the party is in four years or eight years down the line as millennials come more online. But, you know, I, I think Clinton will win California, and that will probably be determinative. Uh, and Sanders should uh, and Sanders will probably do as much as he can to have a say in the party's platform and in the rules that govern it. So even uh, if he loses big in California, you predict he's going to stay in through the uh, through the convention, try to affect the uh, Democratic Party platform? I don't know. I mean, a lot of folks 
are questioning where Sanders is mentally and what his uh, motivations are. But whether he stays in or whether he doesn't stay in, I think uh, after California and after the big primaries, he'll probably strike a more conciliatory tone moving forward, whether he's technically dropped out or not. So the, uh, I, I, I think he's going to try to extract as many concessions out of the party as he possibly can, and why shouldn't he? I, I have never seen so many weak-kneed, terrified Democrats freaking out uh, you know, over democracy breaking out, uh, as they have in the past couple of weeks uh, since the N- Nevada Democratic Convention got a little bit raucous. I mean, you know, even uh, Sanders himself uh, said earlier this week, democracy uh, is uh, can be messy. Democracy is messy. It is indeed. The Democratic Party will survive, David Atkins, no matter what happens here, no matter how long this uh, battle goes on between uh, Sanders and Clinton. Of course it will. I mean, you've got you've got so many folks who are. I mean, they've been Democratic activists for a long time, and they're good people. But they remember Walter Mondale. They remember the the Reagan years. They remember obviously the Bush years. And there's a lot. There's a bit of PTSD, if I if, if I can be a little blunt about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, where where a lot of folks feel like we just need to survive, right? And so we can't have too much conflict. We certainly can't have, you know, the hippies throwing their weight around too much, or the young idiots mm-hmm. throwing their weight around too much. And if we just keep it on an even keel, then we can like save Social Security and make sure that that you know that we don't destroy Social Security and Medicare. And that's good enough. Uh, you know, uh, that's, that's unfortunate, I think, uh, because the parties are healthier for having these debates, and the Democratic Party will be healthier for embracing democratic socialism in the future because the economy is broken, and the party that vows to change that is going to be the one that succeeds moving forward. But, you know, I understand that a lot of these folks who have been around for a long time still see the shadow of Walter Mondale. It's just it's just we're in a very different place now and we're in a different era and it's okay to air these grievances a little bit and have a little more rambunctiousness. It's, it's really okay. It really is. It really is okay. Everyone needs to relax. David Atkins, check out his work, of course, at WashingtonMonthly.com and follow him on the Twitters at David O. Atkins. Great talking to you, David. Hope, uh, hope we'll do it again uh, between now and the apocalypse in November. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with the Green News report and uh, evidence that Donald Trump actually doesn't think climate change is a hoax. Yes, that's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. All right, we are melting for Desi Doyen and our latest Green News report. We could never have guessed the magnitude 
nor the devastation of the Fort McMurray fire. Canada's insurance industry calls for a national strategy to prepare for climate change. He and his brothers are digging up mass graves in Karachi ahead of a potentially deadly heat wave. Pakistan prepares for a deadly heat wave as India breaks temperature records. Portugal breaks world renewable energy record. ExxonMobil developed and squashed patents for electric cars. Plus, Trump denies climate change, but not at his own golf course. For all of those stories straight ahead from Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. There were signs that global warming was getting worse for a long time. And back in February, instead of seeing his shadow, the groundhog just burst into flames. <laughs> Ouch, that should have been a sign. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we haven't gotten to speak about it lately, but the massive wildfires up near the Tar Sands region in Canada continue. Yep, the Fort McMurray fire is still raging out of control and is now likely to be the largest insured loss caused by wildfire in world history. Yep, you heard that right. The largest insured loss caused by wildfire in world history. Canada's insurance industry is now calling for a national disaster strategy plan. In an interview with the CBC, Insurance Bureau of Canada CEO Dan Fogeron said the nation must adequately prepare for accelerating climate change impacts. Well, I think we would be irresponsible uh, as an industry. I think we'd be irresponsible as a country if we ignored uh, what's happening to our climate. And the trends are clear. So we really have to do something about it. Leadership, I think, demands that we try collectively uh, to, uh, to mitigate uh, and create just a more resilient nation. Now, that's not something you'll see in the U.S. corporate media. Well, here's something they could do. Stop digging up that tar sands oil, sending it all over the world, and making the problem even worse. Why don't they start there? That certainly is one way to deal with it. Good point. In the U.S., although the presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump calls climate change a hoax publicly on the campaign trail, privately he's otherwise planning ahead for it. Politico reports that the Trump organization in Ireland is seeking a permit to build a seawall to protect his seaside golf resort from rising seas and extreme storms. Why would he do that? It's a hoax. The permit application reportedly explicitly refers to, quote, global warming and its effects, including accelerated coastal erosion from more powerful storms. Imagine that. Speaking of hypocrisy, ExxonMobil. The Guardian reports on newly uncovered documents released by the Center for International Environmental Law that show the forerunner to ExxonMobil developed patents on electric cars and on technology that could have cut carbon dioxide emissions from automobile exhaust, dating as far back as the 1960s. Yet, the Guardian notes the oil industry has spent millions over the last few decades and fought publicly to squash all government funding of research into electric cars, low-emissions technology, and electric car battery technology. Meanwhile, climate change continues to impact regions around the world. In India, a scorching extended heat wave is melting roads and now has officially broken the record for the highest temperature ever recorded in India, 124 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, man. Yeah. And last year, they had uh, amazing heat waves that killed, uh, what, hundreds, thousands in uh, India? Over a thousand people were killed by the heat wave last year. In Pakistan, they are preparing for another deadly heat wave that has 
been forecast. The government is paying for laborers to dig mass graves in advance of expecting hundreds of losses. Wow. But some good news. India has inaugurated one of the world's biggest solar rooftop power plants. It covers 86 acres of industrial rooftops and can produce up to 11 megawatts of electricity. The nation of Portugal just broke the world record for renewable energy, running the entire nation on 100% clean renewable energy for four days straight. Portugal was able to meet all of its electricity demand with a combination of hydroelectric dams, solar, and wind energy. Wow, take that, Germany. And it's not just Portugal. Last week, the U.K. officially stopped using coal completely for electricity generation. All those old Dickens stories just won't be the same. Finally, a small craft brewery in Florida has invented a potential solution to cutting down on plastic waste in the ocean. The saltwater brewery in Delray Beach developed an edible six-pack ring for its six-packs. It's made from waste from the beer-making process, and they hope it will reduce the damage caused by plastic pollution that is often eaten by marine animals in the ocean. They say the higher cost of the edible six-pack ring will come down if more beer companies adopt their technology. Finally, something good comes out of Florida. (laughs) For much more on those stories and all the ones we couldn't get to, sorry, Florida, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. We got no troubles. Life is the bubbles under the sea. Under the sea. Yes, thank you very much, Desi Doyan. Thank you. And one thing I wanted to add really quick, that the owner of the Saltwater Brewery Company who makes those edible six-pack rings, he said that while edible six-pack rings aren't exactly health food for turtles, at least it won't kill them. He said it's uh, it's like (laughs) having your kid eat candy instead of, say, a Lego. So look at it like that. There you go. So we shouldn't feed them to the sea animals, but if they eat them, it won't kill them. Yes. That's a good thing. All right. My thanks to uh, Desi Doyen, our producer, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to David Atkins of Washington Monthly, and, of course, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. Uh, also appreciated all of you who have stopped by bradblog.com donate to make sure that we can continue doing what we do here on the Bradcast. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it for free at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where I hope you'll give us a good review, make it easier for others to find the show as well. And you can find me and follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog, hashtag Bradcast. We'll be back with you, same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Everybody.